Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you nearly live. We are in Ottawa, Ontario, in the History Department at the University of Ottawa, getting ready for the big digital history workshop, open house, fun fest, all these things. And we're here with one of the organizers of that, Joe McCutcheon. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. So this this is the third year that you're doing the open house uh, with digital history, but it's not specific to a course. Like it's, it's a bunch of different students. So how did you come up with the idea of trying to get all these digital projects together? So basically just to call out a shout out to other professors if they have students who are interested in using digital tools to engage, to uh, enable their projects. And every year is a bit different. Sometimes we have courses that are focused on a specific tool. So in the past, there have been courses that have been using only GIS software or Omeka, but looking at it from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. So just a shout out and see who comes back uh, at us. And this year we had a few students in uh, in classes that I'm team teaching and who have been working uh, in an interdisciplinary uh, class as well. So it was kind of exciting this year. Right. Now, how many classes, how many courses are represented in today's open house? Three classes today were represented. Okay. And so there's your class, which yeah. is the digital history yeah. class. And that obviously has a, a clear tie-in to, yes. to what's going on. It's a digital history course. and But what other courses have, have incorporated this sort of So the other material? class was um, Women, Gender, and Consumption. Mm -hmm. And several students have taken up the challenge of doing an Omeka project, but not the focus of the class. So they didn't participate. We had one student who participated from that class. But he's also done previous classes, and right, so yeah. there's a comfort level there and done the open house before. So I think when you're not quite sure, then it's it might not be your first uh, choice plus end of term. So lots yes. going on. Yeah, lots so we, on. Yeah, we're recording this on April the 26th. So this is, I think, tomorrow's the last day of exams. So like it's really just the end, and some of the students might already be gone yeah too right absolutely <laughs> and with digital they out. can do it from home right so yeah. some of them have gone home and they're working at it from you know getting ready for their summer jobs starting next week or right etc so and other students they stayed on for it they knew well in advance the date of it and so they incorporated it into their final sort of uh, work to do because they also saw it as an opportunity to get feedback mm -hmm. and, you know, get questions to get them thinking about their work. Because this isn't a compulsory part of the course nope. for you. This is an optional part, way to get feedback, improve the project, hopefully, yes. before they turn in the, the final version, uh, version yeah. later in the week. Yeah. So it's, it's a cool opportunity and it's something like the, I've tried to incorporate in my classes the last week of class is a workshop day yes. where we go around and talk about your project, what you want to do and get ideas back and forth. And because to me, that's the most, for me, whenever I'm doing projects, that's the most beneficial time Yes, right? being with other people. Once I have a plan of what I want to do saying, here's what I'm going to do. And then people hopefully will point out the problems yes. with that. So what we did this year is we incorporated two final classes. So we have three week or three hour blocks. So Sarah Simpkin from the library, who is the Digital Humanities Scholarship Librarian, she reserved a room so we had, everybody had the same computers to work off of so that we were not slowed down by a poor internet connection in our class. Right. Somebody's laptop doesn't work, so we could all work together. And then, you know, it was getting students to sit down then as well and really think about what they were going to do. So they had in around five weeks to figure out how they were going to approach their topic. Mm -hmm. And I, I really saw a benefit instead of me lecturing, sitting down for three hours and doing. And yeah. they're in the library, so sometimes they ran up to the stacks, got a book that was relevant to their topic. Right. Other times they just sat and shared with each other. Other times Sarah came over and you know, listen to their question and then offer them a solution. Mm -hmm. So it was really cool. Mm -hmm. So when, when we talk about digital history, I think a 
lot of people would think just anything that happens not on paper, uh, which I, I, you know, to a certain extent, I think that's fair. Um, but you're using specific tools in, in your courses. You mentioned Omeka yeah. uh, as one. And I think for a lot of people, even someone like me who is, does digital things, yeah. uh, I'm not overly familiar with a lot of these tools. I've looked at stuff on Omeka. I've never used it myself. Yeah. So what are the benefits of something like Omeka that you're trying to convey to the students? So they have the opportunity to learn a few important skills. So they are finding items, objects, photographs, and they really have to analyze like where it comes from, what it depicts, because they have to enter that information into Omeka's database mm -hmm. so that they get a record going of it. Um, then they start to think about how they want to organize their ideas engage their audience, and maybe bring in other tools that they're using. So the nice thing about Omeka is that you can use some of their templates or you can use outside tools and bring them into Omeka. So some students have used Google Fusion tables to visualize some of their data, mm -hmm. and then they'll bring that material into Omeka, and then they can describe it. So they see that relationship between um, digital tools or visualization or items and then that uh, textual analysis or the analysis that they're doing mm -hmm. so it's not just and, and they have to wrap their head around that so you know some of them will have a bit of a word count mm -hmm. but what I'm really looking at is you know them thinking about why did they choose Omeka over a Wix web website because some right. of them were like I'm just going to do a website and ended up doing Omeka mm. so what is it that drew them in the end to Omeka I think because it has so much versatility that they can do a little bit of programming or they've got a template that's nice and they can just bring in images music video etc and right. they don't have to do a ton of programming what's the difference say between Omeka then and a website in terms of the functionality both for the student and then for the consumer? So Omeka um, has uh, in the background a really robust robust database so they can store all of their images separate so it doesn't clog up their website but then they can point their exhibition or their website to search. So our database now has, let's say, 500 items. And if people have tagged them, they can search other people's research and bring that into their own. Right. So they can build on what other people have mm -hmm. undertaken. Plus they can also take an approach where they might want to be interactive and have people add to um, their collection. So an example is, you know, there's not a lot of accessible material related to a certain immigration group, then people might see that website and say, hey, I have my grandmother's letter, I have something, and they can then upload it to the mm -hmm. site. So there's that interactivity that can engage an audience you would never get with a paper. Right, paper. right, right. right. And then for the user then, or the visitor to the site, then the accessibility of the, or having access then to all that material because it's all linked together. Exactly. So they don't have to, but some some websites, for example, students will put all their collections there for people to browse. Right. And so it's like having all the primary sources that you might have used. Not everybody will organize it that way, mm -hmm. but some will. And so you can see a collection of a couple hundred posters that were used. So you don't put everything into the exhibition part, right. but then somebody could say, oh, I really like that poster and I'll grab that. Mm -hmm. And it teaches the students too about permissions, rights, right? right? Which was yeah. a big question that came up yep. um, in some of our discussions, you know, trying to avoid quick searches and going to searches like the Library and Archives Canada or Digital Public Library of America. Right. So you've got um, more uh, uh, readily recognizable provenance mm. for the students. Mm. And then with, with all that being said, one of the things that I've noticed is that with digital history or at least in these sort of settings, in the way I employ it in my classes, is that so much of the focus 
is on producing something and mm. what that final product is. But at the same time, all these digital tools are really good for doing history for my own analysis mm -hmm. that I can then apply to, to whatever it is I'm doing, whatever outlet it is, whether it be a conference talk or even mm -hmm. if I'm writing a paper or, you know, I'm in the midst of trying to finish a book, yes. right? Like I have these digital tools that it's not necessarily necessarily about the output and the consumable of it. So how do you manage to, f to incorporate that part into the digital history course? Because so much of the history takes place out of the eyes of the public. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly people like Sean Graham, who will talk to other Sean Graham, real Sean Graham, uh, <laughs> who we'll talk to later, talks about how, and he and Ian Milligan and, and Scott wrote their book in the public mm -hmm. view. Yes, yes. So you can certainly do the research part mm -hmm. in public, but I, I, a lot of us don't, mm -hmm. but we still use the digital tools. So how, how does that get aspect get incorporated into the course, or is that something that can really get incorporated? It can, and so, so we have a series of tools that the students are looking at and sort of the, there's a build up to the course. So they get introduced, say, on a weekly or biweekly basis to different kinds of tools. So data mining, data visualization. Uh, we had a great class on Wikipedia and Google, right? And just mm. thinking more yeah. critically about these two sources um, and tools, how you use them. And then the students will reflect. And the idea is that they will then, at the end, bring all of that into their final project, even if it's by way of reflecting mm. on what they've done. So the public may not see all of that, but they all have shared that in terms of like what they learned, where they came from. Um, and. And I think that answer is just in terms yeah. of like, yeah. so they're, they're constantly thinking of ways. And, and they have that option of doing, I presented in terms of doing a traditional paper, but really using digital tools to enhance their analysis. Because right. maybe they have a large data set. Um, and that would be something like, um, uh, you know, downloading, uh, we, were, we, were, we were playing around with, um, Twitter data, API um, uh, information, and then running it through different data mining and data visualization right. programs. And so getting them to think of, of what do you do with that then? How do you, so it's just one tool, but you're still critically yeah. evaluating. And the one sort of thing that we kept coming back to where students were a bit hesitant and, and concerned about digital tools and whether or not, you know, you want to take the leap to use digital in learning and your projects. And we kept coming back. It doesn't matter like what sources, tools you're using. You still have to have that foundation, right? right. Critical analysis. Yep. It doesn't solve your problem of doing work that's needed to graduate. Mm -hmm. It just, you're taking a different approach. Sure. And as more and more sources are digitally born, you're going to have to handle that material. Like, how do you handle the Twitter feed of some individuals that, I mean, their reach in a day is maybe 15, 20 million daily. Yeah. Right? How do you deal with that data? Whereas you look at the correspondence of early settlers, of, you know, early politicians, and, you know, it fits in a room. Right, yeah. The servers to save yeah. all that doesn't fit in a room anymore. So how do right. you sort of sort that out? No, I, no, I think it's it's a really good point. And I think one of the, the more fun assignments, I think it's yours that you've assigned before, is how people go through the tweets from the CHA yeah. that use the hashtag every year and yeah. and mine through them yeah. and see what's there. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really good way to use the new data that we have in a way to assess yeah. where the, dis in that case, where the discipline is and, yeah. and what's happening. And this year I've married it or, or joined it with some of the tools like Google Fusion and you can, you know, you can really pinpoint time, place, right. figure out who's fake, not like it's right. interesting, but we're, you know, just interesting to see where people are going with yeah. this form of communication, which they said was going to be winding down soon, right? Like Twitter yeah. was on the decline. Still maybe not as robust as, as in sort of an upward trajectory, but I think that it's got a place in trying to understand 
a lot about what's going on yeah. in the world and, and making students aware of this as being, for good or bad, right. an important part of understanding a lot of issues today. You have to sort of figure out how you're going to use that. Mm -hmm. And so that's yeah. an important tool. Yeah. The idea of the fake stuff is, is fun too because there is a lot of fake stuff. And I have to say, we at the Curling Club, me and my friends, we have created a couple fake Twitter accounts <laughs> um, to make fun of each other on. Yeah. Uh, one, of, one of which I used when Aaron Boys, who's been, I guess, on the show a bunch, when he got married, yes. I was tweeting from the f one of our fake accounts. And one of them, his father told an embarrassing story from when he was a kid. And I tweeted the, that story out, and I used the CHA hashtag <laughs> um, on it just, just to see. And then it occurred to me the next day that that <laughs> tweet could have been mined as part of your assignment. Oh I mean, the word fake is in the name yeah, of the yeah. Twitter account, so that yeah. one would have quickly been yes, yes. eliminated. But I just like the idea of it. Absolutely. Uh, it just I don't think we laugh. saw that one. Uh, <laughs> now, another aspect of this, and, and Robert Talbot, I bumped into him last oh, week, cool. uh, and, and we were talking about his manifesto, as, <laughs> as he called it. But the, the idea of, of trying to get or trying to market history in a practical way for right. post-academic employment and, right. and trying right. to do that. Because it's it certainly the two schools in Ottawa, there's diminishing enrollment. Uh, people aren't taking as many history courses. And for as much as the idea of the university as a business might not be all that palatable to a lot of us, there is a financial reality to it. And departments are getting squeezed as enrollments go down. And he and I were talking about the need to have courses that give students skills that are applicable outside the classroom and practical skills, because I think we can all agree that the analytic skills, the research skills, all, all that is very important. Mm -hmm. But if a student can also go out and say, hey, I know how to build this yes. digital thing, that that's a valuable, valuable tool. and. It could, we can take that to both students and at the high school level to parents because a lot of parents and some of my parents' friends have asked me, like, you have three arts degrees? <laughs> like, really? <laughs> um, so, so I'm just wondering, is, is that something that is consciously brought up in the class? And, or are students aware of the practical, on-the-job market implications of doing these sorts of projects? So, two-part answer to that question. I think given my experience uh, in the private sector, as uh, someone who hired history students, I try to bring that into any class uh, and find ways to make connections with regard to skills that are transferable, public sector, private sector, moving further on with their career and constantly get them to think of the skills that they're acquiring and start to take note of them for their their CV, right? right? And really encourage students to, you know, perhaps take, you know, baby steps because I'll get pushback, especially if it's a non-digital class where I'm introducing digital tools. Right. Definitely get pushback where students are like, I signed up for Canadian history. I don't really care about digital. And so... You have to work a little harder to make right. those connections. But for example, Excel. Yeah. Knowing how to use Excel yeah. is key. Major uh, project management software is really expensive. And so I see a lot of organizations doing almost everything in Excel. So I'll give little Excel assignments that can ex you can put on your CV now. You've used Excel. If this is right. the first time you've got this skill and you may not get it in every history class but just being able to use a table to resize columns all that kind of stuff yeah. but also then letting them know that there are resources beyond the classroom for you to learn these mm. activities and i think that's what i get more impressed with in the digital history class is the learning that takes place between students sharing information and really working with my teaching partner, Alexandre Tauchian, to develop a culture in the class where students share mm -hmm. and really try to work collaboratively. From the outset, we talk about that as being an important part of digital history, but then also encouraging them to troubleshoot 
that mm. because of the, you know, the number of programs, platforms, new ideas, new technologies, updates, etc. I can't know everything. Right. Uh, there's just no way yeah. for me to be an expert, and you know my learning has gone up, and 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 still to this day I really haven't played any video games, and yet I love teaching the section on video games mm -hmm. because at that moment I'm learning from the students, right? And we talk about how we can apply the video game activities that they're undertaking to history, but also to job skills mm. and parse what they're doing and what it means they can do. Right. And so I find that, you know, again, it's on my to-do list to try to do more gaming, but I just know that I can't do everything. And so mm. I will let them know that, you know, this one, if you're into this, I will find people to talk to. And, right. and so Twine, a really great example is I get Twine. I reviewed Twine. I've graded Twine. I haven't done it myself. Mm. But students troubleshoot it, right? And right. to me, that'll be the feedback I gave them. Well done. With that, with somebody who didn't guide you at all, you mastered this program or you did this program really well. Mm -hmm. And that's a skill that I think is worth something in the workplace to add, that you are not waiting for somebody to spoon feed you all the information on how to do something. Yeah. But you're going to say, okay, let's take up this challenge. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say, I mean, in my experience, like learning how to lecture, the first lecture I gave here was in Professor Vercutiotis' class. Yeah. I was his TA. And I remember he, he said at the start of the semester, do you want to give a lecture? And I said, sure. He said, all right, you're going to do this week. And I said, great. And then throughout the entire process, whenever I emailed him, he didn't write me back at all, ever. And then I showed up the day of the lecture. What I thought at the time was prepared. And in <laughs> retrospect, I wasn't close to being prepared. But I, and I did my little thing. I timed it out the night before. And it took me an hour and 10 minutes. When I did it in the room, it took 35. <laughs> I just zoomed right through everything. And then he got up and, and filled in the gaps of stuff I, I, I missed. But then in retrospect, and then talking to him afterwards, that was a conscious decision on his part to sort of say, you have to figure this out on your own. You have to try it on your own. I know this probably isn't going to go well. If I help you or if I don't help you, it's probably not going to go that great. But you having the experience of putting it together yourself and then figuring out where you need to improve will benefit you more in the long term. He didn't say it that explicitly, but I got the sense that that's what he was doing. And it was intentional, and I really appreciated it. Yeah. Uh, it just made me better. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I, I, and if that's sort of the model yeah. that, in that case, you're trying to follow, I, I mean, I think it, it, it can work. And, of course, students will always get nervous, like, well, what about my grade? Yeah. But if we can provide that opportunity to work through troubleshoot, and sometimes and it's not going to be, the final product isn't going to be all that successful, but that's fine. So, I've... I've had students who have written papers and who have submitted uh, digital projects and I would say that sometimes you will see a little bit like stronger like students somehow maybe they're more passionate about the digital side and so it really comes out but I would say as well students who are strong students not you know at the the top of the class like it's just a different format in the right. at the end and they're still, you know, reading secondary sources. And I would say that the secondary sources they use for their traditional paper is very <laughs> similar to the ones yep. they do at the end and still has the same, you know, same problems, pitfalls, where they weren't necessarily critical or they didn't necessarily read deep enough or et cetera. And so, but some people don't, don't see that. Like, right. it, it really is similar and, and seeing students... And that's why they do different, not every assignment that they do is is um, digital, right? So right. they're reflecting, so you get a sense of their writing, their critical thinking. Mm. And you can see the ones who are critical thinkers, who are risk takers, mm -hmm. who are willing to give it a chance and know that it's not about whether or not their map worked perfectly or their 
website is like clean and beautiful. Right. But when I look at the back end and the work that they put into it and the research, I know that for most of them, they haven't put that much work in other papers. Right. And that's not to say that it's a reflection on necessarily uh, other courses, but it's that opportunity to really do something that you love. And it comes out way more as opposed to me assigning, you know, a everybody has to do the same review of a book. Right. Yeah. I'm, you know, they're they're just not going to have the same passion. Sure. That I might have for the book. I think, I think it's the best book ever written, and I'm still going to have like it doesn't thirty percent yeah. of them who are going to hate it and hate me for having assigned them right. that book. Right. Yeah. Whereas for most of them, they will have developed this topic, and you can see, right, student from Lebanon you know, family Lebanese heritage, and he's really interested in that section. A student of Irish heritage, student who is absolutely fascinated with, you know, uh, 1820s and 30s in Canada, um, mm. you know, on a mission to make it a more studied, <laughs> right? He's, but, yeah. but that, yeah. and so he could do it. And so you get to see what students are really passionate and interested in. And I think that's my favorite part of the course is not being hemmed into any one topic or any one and some people approach it so that they only focus on their area of interest but for me I I like seeing students get creative and see what they're passionate about and that's fun yeah absolutely in that and, way. and so we're gonna go upstairs now and look at some of these and look at the Excellent. projects and the passion so uh, so Joe thanks for taking the time to do this you're welcome <laughs> okay we're here at the workshop with Chris Pilak Welcome. Hi, nice to be here. So, uh, I had the chance to go around and look at all the projects. I really enjoyed yours uh, and the idea of it. So just tell the people uh, what you put together. Uh, so I'm doing a digital exhibit uh, looking at uh, trans newspapers and newsletters and conferences from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, and just looking at things that they're selling, things that they're writing about, and looking at the values embedded in this act of consumption. Um, so I looked at kind of three main aspects of that. So there's kind of space and consumption, body and consumption, um, and kind of material consumption. So for the first one, um, a lot of the conferences would be hosted, and I'm just looking at the workshops that they would put on and the values embedded in it. So there's a lot of workshops on things like the proper way to walk, you know, cis normative feminine, uh, the proper way to talk feminine, uh, things like that. And when looking at the body, um, it's mainly looking at things like breast forms, so kind of simulating breasts, um, and also looking at things that would kind of simulate, again, you know, cis normative feminine hips. Um, and then with material fashion, of course, it's just looking at basically women's fashion, but with some interesting uh, differences. So a lot of the specific retailers that were geared towards trans women would actually kind of market themselves as, you know, selling women's shoes, but with cis male sizes. So in looking at all three of those main aspects, I found a lot of interesting values embedded in it in terms of safety, um, just due to, you know, then and now there's a lot of danger in being an out trans woman, um, and also looking at uh, most interestingly, the issue of kind of temporality that a lot of these trans women were in the closet and so could not, you know, be out. So a lot of the things, you know, like the fake breasts, the fake hips, were things you could easily take off. Um, and then the final main thing I discovered was the issue of passing. So again, looking cis-normative feminine. So you find a lot of that in the workshops to, you know, walk feminine, have a feminine posture, and also to have a body that, you know, looked feminine. So, yeah. <laughs> right. and, and these are all really, so, so the idea of this is really interesting, and this is the sort of thing that would work in a paper, I think, and most students would look at that as a paper, but there's so many visual elements to this yeah. that, that you've identified that your exhibit that you've put together, um, now I didn't, of course, go have time to go through the whole thing because there was a big line in yeah. front of the table, but there, there was visual elements to it. So how did you then transpose all that material into a cohesive exhibit and where did you find a lot of the visual material that is present in that exhibit? So I want to give a massive shout out to the Digital Transgender Archive. Um, it's run out at the University of Victoria um, and it has the majority of the resources I'm using for it. They have fully digitized, fully transcribed conference material. Um, the newsletters are all on there. So I found, I mean one of the main reasons I did an online exhibit is just because I feel like trans history in general one, it's just there's not a lot out there, and two, there's kind of 
at least I believe there's a belief among the general public that you know queer has queer folks, trans folks, just kind of came out of nowhere, you know, 30 years ago. So an online exhibit was very important for me in terms of highlighting it, and also not just you know putting it out there, but putting it out there in an engaging way. So I tried to pair a lot of the interesting visuals, a lot of the kind of interesting ads with a bit of kind of narrative text about it. Just, you know, just talking about what a breast form is, maybe isn't as engaging as actually having that, but also showing what it is, just because I think a lot of people with things like breast forms, they wouldn't know necessarily what it looks like. So I tried to pair as much, you know, interesting pictures that were able to tell that story with also kind of text and like a bit of more of a write-up about it. What were the biggest challenges, though, of trying to do that in a digital form? Um, especially, I mean, you know, as Sean talked about in his talk, so many classes are geared to the paper and the form of the paper. So now you're going through a, a research methodology that involves a lot of historical work, but then the output is very different from what I'm sure you've experienced in the past in courses. So how, what was the biggest challenge in, in then taking that to a digital platform? Um, I definitely found, I, I've taken a lot of uh, classes with uh, Joanne Gutschma before, so uh, I, I knew she was a big proponent of digital tools. I love digital tools as well, so I kind of knew at the outset I'd be able to do something interesting, do something interesting in terms of public history. The main difficulty was was kind of on the back end of the digital tools, was actually finding digital sources. Um, so the Digital Transgender Archive is again, like, it was a massive boon for me. Um, so definitely a main problem was actually finding a lot of the sources. It's one I was able to kind of work through. But looking forward, um, just because I do really like public history and kind of putting things out there, thinking about ways to kind of you know market this and put it online is something that I think I'm going to have to work towards a lot in terms of you know sharing it on Twitter and making sure things are kind of coached in the proper kind of historical context because these folks who've got writing fairly isolated in you know the 70s 80s and 90s some of the some of the terms they use are kind of outdated today so it's just about kind of situating the proper historical context just because you know as Sean Gam talked about uh, if you put yourself out there in public you can oftentimes you know get attacked by internet people so just kind of properly situating the historical material and making sure people can access it and I mean hopefully learn something from it. So is that something you're aware of while you're going through the process? Obviously this is a very sensitive topic. Contemporary in contemporary society like I mean we can study stuff that frankly nobody cares about. This is not one of those things. So is that something you were conscious of in putting together the digital product? Oh uh, 100%. Um, I personally love trans history. There's um, there's not a whole lot out there that I'm aware of in terms of public history. There there's one from the vaults, um, but yeah. Besides that, there there isn't a whole lot out there. Whenever I talk about the project, I always try to like talk about the kind of contemporary issues uh, trans folks go through because it was just as bad then. Um, now people are a bit more comfortable in terms of kind of coming out as trans. Um, but back then, it was so interesting to do through the historical research to see that such a major emphasis was on remaining in the closet. Um, so yeah, kind of definitely contemporary trans history or contemporary trans experiences really informed the reason why I wanted to do it and also kind of get it out there. Again, just because I feel like being trans, uh, being queer, it's not people don't think of it as a thing that's existed right. for a while. Um, so. Putting out trans history, I think, was really important for that. That's right. Thank you. It is, it is a terrific site, and, and hopefully uh, a lot of people will get to experience. So good job, Chris, and Thank thanks you. for doing this. Okay, now we're here with Chloe Madigan, and she, with a larger group, has done this really cool project about soundscapes, and it's with the Canadian Science and Tech Museum, and you are saving the museum. Yes. Yeah, Everything obviously. is riding on our shoulders. Of yeah. course. So just could you explain what you were trying to do in putting this together? I, I think this is super, super cool. So basically we got to pick an object um, from the museum itself and then we built a soundscape around uh, the object that we picked. So the theme was science fiction and then we got to do an acoustic profile and do some research and then build a soundscape along with that object. Now how do you go about doing that though? Because you know, a lot of s artifacts just sit there, and 
especially if ones that don't work anymore or ones that, God forbid, aren't electric, mm -hmm. uh, they're not really making a lot of sound. So how did you go about doing that? What was that process? Um, you're right. Some of them did not do any sounds at all. Luckily, we did get to touch um, and play with some of the objects and record some sounds that we could find. Um, but other than that, we did our research. Uh, we found the little articles that might have mentioned some sounds. Like for me, I had Sputnik. I chose Sputnik and um, I found some beeping sounds on the NASA website or some sounds on YouTube. And that's kind of sort of how we went along with it. We did our research and then afterwards we built a soundscape from that. So what is the benefit of having the soundscape like so if I'm looking at an object say what do you feel the benefit is for me to hear what the soundscape of that object is I think it just creates so much more of a fulfilling experience um, having to engage different senses that you're not used to engaging I think really makes it a fulfilling experience further than just the actual visual artifact that you're used to seeing in a museum so how then do you make this work in a museum you have headphones here and people can listen on the headphones in a museum you know walking through a museum when there are headphones it seems like people tend to be reluctant to put them on would be my experience so how do you try to incorporate this to make it a immersive experience for a visitor to the museum. We've actually had extensive discussions with the museum about this, um, with this from the student perspective and the museum, and we ultimately decided to go with the headphones route. Um, so hopefully, if they do end up putting it on in their actual exhibit, then we will have earphones to go along with them and people might be able to listen to them because we did construct them individually to go with the actual artifacts so they might be able to press a button and then listen to the soundscape. Right, and when you have the headphones on, it is more immersive, mm -hmm. whereas if it's just a sound that is emanating from a speaker exactly. when there's other people around, it doesn't quite give you the same exactly. experience. Now, there's also the issue of accuracy and historical accuracy on this. You did Sputnik. Yeah. And one of the things that we talked about when I came around is that how do you create something that is maybe not authentic, but is is representative of what the sound the device actually made. So could you just talk about that process a little bit and yeah. how you try to ensure that you weren't just making something up and, and that it's based in actual historical material? Definitely. Um, we got to do a lot of research beforehand before actually going to the sound um, side of it and going to the clips and the music and the YouTube videos and all that stuff. Um, we did a lot of scientific research and a lot of articles, even for me specifically, um, would even describe the sounds on paper. So sometimes they would say there's a beep emanating um, with a 0.3 second pause in between the beeps. So it really, it, it was good and it was helpful. Um, so I think we all kind of had a different perspective in that, but ultimately we tried to make it as objective as possible um, so it could cover as much of um, ground and accuracy as possible. Did you come across any of the stuff where the sound doesn't necessarily match the visual? Um, I think some people did. Mine, not necessarily, because I tried to emanate the iconic beat that was related yeah. to Sputnik, but some people, um, some other students were struggling with that a little bit because some sounds weren't existing. They couldn't find it because their object was so old that they had to kind of improvise and invent sounds on their own. Right, now you are also a communications major and we'll kind of forgive you for, for that. Um, but I'm just curious because a lot of his, history students would come into a project like this and as Sean talked about in his talk, might be a little taken aback in starting it. Did, did you have a little more comfort with the idea? So like the idea of sensory experiences and immersive experience and then soundscapes I, I would imagine you have more exposure to that side, that stuff within a communication yeah. setting so do you feel that helped you in putting these together see this was a huge misconception with my background a lot of people thought that I had um, uh, more experience than the average student in sound production but I actually don't necessarily I do have more experience on the video side but I've never even worked with anything sound related I only started working with audacity the program um, that some of us use through this program and I was struggling with it so it was a real learning curve for all of us I was frankly I was very nervous at the beginning because I had no idea what to expect 
So I just kind of jumped right into it, and it ended up that the curators from the museum really liked my final product, um, even like my first draft. So that was kind of how I built it from there, and we were just all going with the flow, really. Okay, but okay, but maybe not necessarily the technical experience, but the theoretic concepts mm. of this. The, would I be right to assume that you had experience with those sorts of ideas? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think more of like the research behind the actual acoustic profile that we had to do, yes, that I was a lot more comfortable with, I think, um, because it was more of, yeah, some of the more of the practical research, but even, you're right, even also the theoretical side was very interesting in developing. Um, I was more comfortable with that side than the actual technical aspect, but some students, like classical studies background, history background, were more apt to do in-depth, like, essays and things like that on the actual object, so they, they had a different definitely coming into it. Well, it's really, it's a cool idea. It's, there's a whole bunch of them here, so it's, it's really great. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk. No problem, thank you. All right, and we were here with Sean Graham. The, the real Sean Graham. A Sean Graham. Uh, I've been calling myself fake Sean Graham. I used to get email meant for Sean Graham, the premier in New Brunswick. Oh, see, that's a cooler Sean Graham than me. Yeah. And you guys actually spell your name the same way. Yeah, well, there is that. Yeah, did you ever get hate mail? Yes. Yes, oh. I did. There was a gentleman very upset about his taxes. Oh, no. Yeah. What did you, did you respond? Well... Because that could have been really funny. Well, I, I didn't at first, but then he kept, he was very tenacious. And you, you have to admire his engagement with direct democracy. Mm -hmm. But yeah. um, eventually I collected all of the emails and I sent them to the, the New Brunswick government and said, please deal with this. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so you are here. Uh, you are the keynote speaker for the Digital History Workshop that has just concluded. And your speech was entitled, Oops, I Did It Again, How I Failed in Public and Survived to Tell the Tale. Yep. The message of this is, is tremendous, I think. And the idea that you can fail and be upfront about failing and doing it in a public way. So I'm just wondering then, your message to the students was, don't be afraid to fail. But you also said that in your courses, when you present that type of thinking that students back away sometimes. Yes. So I'm just wondering how can we all try to incorporate that but maintain that safe space? Because you, you, you talked about keeping safe spaces and giving students the opportunity to fail in a way that is productive. Yeah. I'm just wondering practically how can we create that space? So I mean there's, there's the difference between the productive failure and the unproductive failure. And it's, I think it's key when you're doing digital history or teaching it and so on, is to, to keep the focus always on process because your students are going to come with a wide variety of skills at the outset and you're not trying to grade them on whether or not they become superstars in terms of Python coding or whatever, right. but you, you want to actually be looking at their process, their evolution and their transformation so that the, the student who leaves that class at the end of the term is thinking about doing history in a very different way than she was when she first arrived. So I used to be kind of naive about things and encourage people to fail gloriously in public all the time. And that's easy for me to say, being a middle-aged white guy on the internet. Mm -hmm. And it's a profoundly stupid and dangerous thing for me to say, being a middle-aged white guy on the internet. Right. So I... When I say failing in public now, I, I'm thinking exactly as you say, about the safe space and where that space is. And uh, I've, the, the space doesn't have to be overly big. It just has to be more than professor and student. Mm. Just there, there has to be, a, when you're doing digital work, nobody does digital work on their own. They go to Stack Overflow, they post questions, they show stuff in process, right. they ask for help. And teaching students how to ask for help and making it safe to ask for help or to collaborate, all these things are really tremendously hard because we've done a great job of disciplining students in history yeah. to not <laughs> do right. these things. Yeah. So to make it safe uh, to fail involves a whole lot of deprogramming right at the outset and unstitching of the ways students have become acculturated to being historians mm -hmm. and that can be hard and that can be difficult and that can be very uncomfortable for students and when students have dropped my classes and of course every term students drop your sure, courses yeah. for all sorts of different reasons 
one of the reasons is this mismatch between how they feel history is supposed to be done and how I'm trying to persuade them to do it. Right. So am I making safe spaces for people to fail? Um, not 100% of the time. I'm reaching a good number of my students, but I'm still not reaching all of them. Right. Not everybody's um, on board yet with how I do this. Yeah, and I, I agree. It's really hard because, and I'm sure everyone who is taught at the post-secondary level has the same experience of doing office hours and having nobody office show up. Office hours are the loneliest hours. Yeah, they are, right? Yeah. Like, and, and, and actually, I didn't do them yesterday uh, for my Carlson course. I because no one had showed up all semester, so I thought yeah. I could get away That'll with That'll be the day five people turn up, <laughs> right, and yeah. you'll hear about it on your evaluations. Yeah, and, 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 but it is. It's not, just a, it's not just that they don't want to come and ask you or that they're scared or, or whatever. A lot of times, it's a, you're right, in lower-level courses, they've been taught, figure it out. Yeah. And I, I'm guilty of that myself in, in my course that I'm doing on radio and television, the final project in the syllabus, it literally says you can do whatever you want. Yeah, um, that's scary. Yeah. Uh, I say, come talk to me in advance, and I'll help, I'll, I, I'm here to help you work through the process. But I say, do whatever you want. So I, I don't know if I'm doing a good enough job of... A lot of people come, uh, it's usually in class or after class, but I don't know if I'm doing a great job of creating that environment myself because, as you say, it's very difficult it, to do. It is. There's... Um, uh, James Miller has said to me on occasion, you know, the scariest thing to say to students is you can, you know, write a 40-page paper, and the second scariest thing is you can do, don't write a 40-page paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I kind of messed that <laughs> phrase up. It sounded better when James said it. But, um, yeah, there's a trust thing, right? And you, you have to work really hard to get students to actually trust you when you say you can do X, Y, Z, or I'm really interested in work that goes this way, or you use this platform. Getting students to actually trust that you mean what you say, because they're waiting for you to try and catch them out. Right. Everything's a trick question. Mm. Um, and I don't know where that comes from, whether that's something they learn in high school, or whether it's something that we have inadvertently taught them to expect. Or, um, But when you present them with a digital class and you say, okay, I'm, I'm interested in sound work or I'm interested in maybe you building a, a game in Twine or, or doing this, there's paralysis, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So I've, I've started, at least in my courses and the ones I'm rewriting at the moment, of trying to narrow down the range of possibility and say, in this course, the final project, I want you to address this question, this big meta question about history, right. but through this particular format mm -hmm. or on this particular platform. Interesting. And if you really have a burning desire to do something different, well, then we can talk. But for mm -hmm. everybody else, let's go this way. Yeah, and I, I guess the interesting part for me, too, is though, as when I've shifted to this more open-ended project, the grades have gone up. And it could be <laughs> just bias on my part that that I'm seeing something that I want to be better so that I'm seeing But the sense I get is that the students are more engaged. They're doing stuff that they care about because they're selecting the, the topic and the outlet that they want to produce whatever content. And the, the expectations are within an analytic framework. Yeah. I want you to analyze something, come to some conclusion, make some sort of argument about something. You can just do it in the format that yeah. you want to. And... So I think the, the grades have gone up because the engagement has gone up and therefore the quality of the research and the process has gone up. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's my theory on it, but I'm not entirely sure. Something that I've, I think is having an effect in my classes is that I do try and push students to do a lot of work in public where mm -hmm. the wider world can see it. And nothing floors students more than when somebody they've been reading actually takes the time to send them a tweet or respond to them. Right. Um, that can be quite exciting and frightening at the same time. There's, so there's doing things in public, but there's also, I try to use rubrics um, to give the students a sense of what my basic expectations are. And you can approach rubrics by having one that has every single possible criterion and all of the different levels of performance that match these different things. That kind of rubric 
tends to overwhelm. And I mean, if you can't get people to read the syllabus, they're not going to read <laughs> the, the rubric. But so there's an idea of the, the one element rubric where you just say, look, this is what a really good piece will address. You need to address these same things in order to get a really good piece. If you don't address these things, I'm just going to send it back to you. Right. Um, another strategy, Paul O'Donnell at the University of Lethbridge has this thing called uh, Paul Daniel O'Donnell, forgive me, the, the unessay, where he says, I'm going to grade your work, your untraditional work, uh, against its um, how compelling it is and how truthful it is. Hmm. And then these things can be broken down to mean different things depending on the medium that the student right. goes to explore. And you build that rubric with the student as they are building the thing up. Right. So doing digital history is way more work for the student, but it's also way more work for the, the instructor as well. Yes. Yeah. It requires different kinds of support that institutionally we're not in the habit of giving yet. No, it, uh, and that's probably, and that's the thing, like, that I, I think a lot of people, it's easy just to assign an essay. Yeah. And read essays, because I know how to grade those. And students and, know how to produce yeah. the bare minimum that is a B or a C or an yeah. A. And when you frig with that, when you tell students you're not going to do an essay, mm -hmm. uh, your students who are normally the best students in the class get very upset mm -hmm. because they already know how to play the game of being a student and you've gone and changed the rules. Right, right. And then, it, you know, I actually got a very nice email the other day from one of my students at Carleton who he submitted the, the exam. It was a take-home exam. And he submitted and he sent me an email and said, this is the final thing I had to do, so I'm not a student anymore. And he wrote this long thing about how in the class that he really appreciated the opportunity to do something different. And he said that his grades were always middling-ish, or that I might be yeah. putting more on, he didn't actually say that, but he said, you know, the, the grade I got on the final project in this class was higher than anything I've ever gotten. And I think it's because I got to do something I'm passionate about yeah. and write something that I care about in a different form you know, I'm not a great essay writer, and I don't really care about writing essays, but here was a chance to do something different. And he said that going forward, he hopes to apply that idea of, like, let's do stuff that we're passionate about yeah. and invested in. And that's what he's taken away from the class, which I think is great. I think that's a tremendous because, win. Yeah, I mean, the content that I taught in the class is like, fine, whatever. Yeah. Um, people forget that all the time. But if he's taking that lesson from it, I think then for that student, that class was successful. Exactly. And, and digital history gives students, more students, greater opportunity to shine. Right. Because you can reach them in different ways and they can connect in different ways. And, you know, the content of a, a course, in a world, in a world gone mad, <laughs> in a world where everything is everywhere, right, where it doesn't take too long to get a pretty good synoptic view of a, a particular topic, Teaching content is, is the least that we can be doing. Right. Right? We sh digital history forces us to think about process and about how people think about things. And it, it makes us work on these other aspects that we are freed to do, right? right? Because of the, the fact of massive databases of articles sure. or, or what have you. Yeah. So the last two examples I gave, I think, painted me in a very positive light. So let me paint me in not, <laughs> not a positive light uh, and something that I'm not very good at as an instructor and that is grading process. Because yeah. you talk about it's, it's, and I agree, it's about the process. Yeah. It's not about the final product, but at, at some point, I'm not there for the process. I don't get to see and experience the process. I get to see and experience the final product. And I think one thing that I'm guilty of in these new assignments that I've been doing is judging or assessing students so much on that final product yeah. as opposed to trying to figure out what that process is. So that I think that's a real weakness uh, that I have right now. Uh, and you talked today about it's about the process, but how can I as an instructor assess that process when I'm not present for it? It is difficult and I don't know that I've hit on the right or best or even most effective solution, but what I've come around to doing in recent years, um, first of all, I spell out quite clearly in the, in the grading at the, at the very beginning in the syllabus and so on, that the final project is not make or break. 
that it is. And this is partly to to uh, soothe those fears of doing digital work that history right. students will have right off the bat. Um, I say, you know, the, the focus is going to be on your process and it is entirely possible to do well in this course without necessarily having your digital thing have all the bells and whistles and work right. perfectly at the end. Then the grading of the process, um, I think it was Mark Sample who called it a fail log or a flog uh, a few years ago. But, you know, we, lots of folks have students blog their work. But the idea of a fail log is to actually specifically write each week about things that did not work oh. and why they did not work and what you did as a result of these things. And so then you end up with a body of evidence over the semester of how the student has addressed the problems that they've encountered. And when you see that laid out like that, for a student who uh, comes at computing very surfacey, you know, they, they do a bit of Facebook, they write emails back home occasionally, versus a student who builds their own virtual machine in Linux. Right? You, you can see very quickly how different students are approaching the material. Right. And you can see the, the other part of the design is that I also try to build exercises that hit different levels of competency. So if you're, so the idea is you, you push yourself as a student to do as many of these exercises as you can. Mm -hmm. It's not how many you do that matters. It's the story you tell me about how you've Okay. Done it. And if you sail through them and they're all simple, easy for you, then you design the next one. Right. Right. So I yeah. try and put it on. And it's, in, in a way, I'm trying to co-create the, the way the course unrolls. Mm -hmm. And it becomes very individualized at this point. Yeah. And it is a lot of work. And there must be a more efficient way of doing this, but I haven't cottoned on to it yet. Well, went the more like the more efficient way would make it less individualized. It would, absolutely. Right? And that sort of compromises the whole point yeah. to an extent. And, and this is what administration never understands about teaching online, for instance. If mm. digital history is a, is a subset of online teaching or, or the Venn diagram it intersects, is that doing digital work, teaching digitally, teaching online, requires so much more work in you know, for, for lack of a better phrase, a pastoral care mm -hmm. of keeping things going. It's, it's gardening. It's constant. Yeah, that's a great metaphor. It's gardening. Yeah. You have to tend your garden all the time. Right. Whereas um, if you're growing wheat on the prairies, you just turn up with your combine at the end. Mm. And uh, now we're going to get emails from the wheat farmers. Hi, wheat farmers. Yeah, like, they're going to be angry. I grew up it. on a farm. I'm, I'll take you on. I'm sure there's got to be more to wheat farming than that. Yeah, there's I not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, John Deere wants to own your intellectual property, but that's another story. Um, so I, I do want to ask, though, apart from just the teaching, you have, I'm going to say, have applied these same methods to your own work, particularly with the book that you wrote with Ian and... Um, Scott and Scott, where essentially you, you wrote it in public, yes, and then took feedback and, and saw what worked, and then actually put it together as a, a book. It was terrifying. Um, I imagine that would be very terrifying. Yeah. So, do you feel as though that when you're talking to to students, you can point to that experience and say, "Here's a public." Thing. In addition to the, you, you talked today about your failure with the first website you did at Carleton. Yeah. But here's another public thing that students can go back and actually trace it through. Exactly. I, I fail in public all the time. Hmm. And, you know, I talk with students about keeping their fails in a, in a circumscribed public space so that it, it's safe. But if academic freedom means anything, if tenure is good for anything, then it is incumbent on me to put myself out there and fail in spectacular ways so that it becomes normalized and it becomes safe for other people in more precarious positions mm. to try the same thing. Um, you know, I, I'm a white dude on the internet, so I got to use that for, for something useful. Mm. And, you know, there's a, in the 70s, I, I come out of Roman archaeology, and there was a book by Keith Hopkins on trade taxes in the Roman Empire. And it was a very quantitative study. And he writes right at the beginning, there's going to be lots of errors in here. Uh, I've done my best with them. I know it's flawed. Da, da, da. He gets the shots in first. I mean, it's right. hard to criticize somebody 
for not doing XYZ if they've yeah. already identified XYZ right. in their work. So how horrible would it be to write a book about digital history and keep it hidden to yourself and then release it to the world and discover that you've missed something critical right. and so on. And I mean, we wrote the macroscope in public and we still managed to miss something critical and important mm. before it became a physical book. And we ended up writing a subsequent section post-publication that uh, when we do a second edition will become a critical piece in it, which mm. is uh, about, well, you know, we're, we're three white guys and we managed to um, do a classic white guy thing, in, which was to forget so much of the diversity of right, digital yeah. history like we are just uh, uh that is a that is a fail that is embarrassing and <laughs> i'm sorry that i did that but we did it we owned it it's on the the website now yeah and uh, the next edition will be better so mm. i point to students point students to this and i say i'm not asking you to do anything that i haven't already done in spades but i'm not going to ask you to do it where you're going to get attacked Right, because, yeah, you have to provide that layer of yeah, protection. I, I used to be very naive about that, and I had my eyes open by watching things happen to, to other people, mm. and thankfully not my own students. Right. But, um, yeah, the world is a shitty place. It can be. It really can be. Yeah. And, and, again, that speaks to the whole process of it and the idea that, you know, nothing is ever ever done. And it's always going to improve, or can always improve, and you can always learn from different things. But I also want to ask about content, right? It's it's the tools are all well and good, and it's nice to have them, and it gives us new ways to to study stuff. Can digital history work for any historical topic, or are there topics that would still be better, best served by either the traditional textual stuff or um, experiential learning like sensory type stuff or, or can we can we digitize the discipline as a whole I think Trevor Owens wrote a piece a couple years ago on discovery and justification are different and the uses of computation if you are coming at it to try and justify an argument um, I think you're going to end up dashing your head against the wall I think digital history is about deformation and about changing how you see materials. I don't know that that means that some content is off limits from it, but it, the questions that you ask are a function of the methods that you, or the methods you use are a function of the questions you ask. Right, yeah. So, so it depends on what I'm asking. What you're what asking. asking. And the nice thing about digital tools is that it changes what it is possible to ask. Yeah. Or how you might ask it. You know, there's a, Jim Clifford has a student whose name escapes me at the moment, but he looked at word frequencies in a World War One diary from the front and turned that into sonic clouds, sonic word clouds, so that he could hear the patterns within the material. Mm. That's a classic digital history deformation mm -hmm. that makes him come back to the source materials and look at them differently and ask different questions of them. Mm. Uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. Right, but but within that realm, is there still a place for, say, a, a, I mean, you wrote a book, so clearly you think there's a place for that, right? I oh, mean, yeah, I think there's, like, uh, you know, there's there's as many different ways of approaching the, the, the problem as there are historians. You have to find the... right. The, you know, I, I'm not recommending that everybody must become right, digital yeah. because yeah. a, I'm afraid other people would be far better at it than <laughs> me, and b, it's not. All these things are, are complementary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true, and I do actually uh, get concerned like when my students put together really good stuff that uh, they're going to steal my jobs. Like yeah. This, when I see good stuff, I'm like, this is good, but. Yeah, it was such a fluke that I got this job in the yeah. first place. I uh, I would be terrified of somebody coming along. But no, I, I'm not. I, there's there's more than enough space here, and yeah. it expands all the time because um, what can be digital changes all the time. But I mean, we have offloaded so much of the cognitive load onto algorithms, onto different platforms. They're digital historians 
need to be thinking not just about the material or the content as if it's this thing external, but rather how we find this material changes what it is we can know. Like this is why right. Ian Milligan's work is so important. Mm. Um, we, we, are, we live in a world where you will follow the instructions of your GPS even though you know they're wrong right, yeah. because it's a machine telling you right. what to do. When the machine starts telling you what to think about the quiet revolution or the, the rebellions or, um, the, or the 2016 election, Right. Mm -hmm. That's I, I've called this big data gothic in other right. <laughs> other contexts. Right. You, uh, you sublimate yourself to the terror of the data and right. the machine, yeah. and and that needs to be there needs to be a counterbalance to that all the time. And I think history, in its multiplicity of methods, is best suited mm. for being that counterbalance. Mm. And certainly. You are one of the leaders in the country in doing that. So. And doesn't that scare the uh, shit out of everybody? <laughs> uh, well, I, I scares the crap out of me. <laughs> well, we we appreciate you coming in uh, to do the, the the talk earlier today. I appreciate you taking the time oh, no, this afternoon to do this. So, uh, Sean Graham, thank you. Thank you, Sean Graham. All right. So, my thanks to Joe McCutcheon, Chris Pielak, Chloe Madigan, and other Sean Graham for coming on the show as well. Thanks to everyone who helped organize the digital history open house at the university of ottawa if you have any questions or comments for the podcast it's history slam at gmail.com twitter at dr shawnee fever and if you're out and you see enrico palazzo please say hi for me thanks for listening to the history slam podcast be sure to check out active history for more features articles and be sure to subscribe on itunes